when you say I don't believe in ADHD, it's as if this is a faith-based approach. It should not be a faith-based approach. It should be a medical and scientific approach. So the American Medical Association Scientific Council once said that ADHD was one of the best research medical conditions in all of medicine. That's a quote from 1998. That's 16 years ago, and we've had an explosion of international research in ADHD. So if you say I don't believe in ADHD, what you've just told me is that I haven't learned about it. I'm not interested in reading the research, and I have an opinion. Don't confuse me with the facts. That's all very well and good. Please refer your patients who may have ADHD to someone who's trained enough to make an accurate diagnosis and recommend effective treatment. ADHD Rewired, episode 117. This is the show designed to help those of us who have really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and consultant. We know that starting can be the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me thank our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Tom Nardone's book, Chasing Kites. Pick up your copy of this funny but emotional roller coaster of an ADHD memoir at tomnardone.net. And stay tuned until the end of the show, where Eric Tivers will read his favorite passages from Chasing Kites. And of course, the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. Registration for summer sessions is now closed, and both sessions are full. To all the new coaching group members, you are in for an amazing and intense 10 weeks. Dates for fall sessions will be announced in the next few weeks. You won't want to miss early registration pricing even though I'm, I know that most of you will. But just in case, you can learn more about the group and all things ADHD Rewired by going to ADHDrewired.com. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. My guest today is Dr. David Goodman. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine, director of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Center of Maryland in Baltimore. Dr. Goodman is an internationally recognized expert, researcher for clinical trials, teacher to psychiatric residents, a media consultant to national television and press, author of several publications, professional publications, and five book chapters, a pre-publication reviewer for scientific journals, and advocate as a board member for Chad and Apsard, which is the professional's version of Chad. That's the way I describe it anyways. For the last 30 years, he has provided patient care in his full-time practice. This is going to be a treat. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. So when I, I got introduced to you um, from talking to a, a past guest, uh, Dr. David Pomeroy, and he said, you have to talk. I have to talk to you. One of the first things that he really talked about was when he's been in, in I guess, meetings or conferences with you, how you were really able to, I guess, clarify 
a lot of issues. And one of the things that you created uh, for psychiatrists was the Black Book of ADHD. Could we start there and um, and share with us kind of why you created that uh, for psychiatrists and how does this help uh, the consumer, whether they're a patient, client, or whatever role that they are in? So the Black Book of Psychiatry was created for clinicians because a lot of clinicians are not formally trained on ADHD, and they found that they had people coming into their office and patients and family members saying, I think I have ADHD, and the clinicians who weren't trained shrugged their shoulders and said, well, I'm not too familiar with that. I I don't know how to help you. So I put together this book, which is really a very short book of about 50 pages because it's not text-based. It's all tables and charts for the clinician to reference information extremely quickly. So, for example, what information would someone want to find? How often does an adult with ADHD have an anxiety disorder or a mood disorder? Or what are the risk factors that somebody's going to have ADHD as a child that continues into adulthood? Or what are the medications that are available and what's the dosing recommendations? So all that information was put together in a very handy book that clinicians could actually put in their their pocket and carry around with them and reference. It was an extensive, yeah, it was an extensive book, although it's only 50 pages. uh, There are 165 references, so it was extremely uh, well-referenced book with all of the literature at, at, at that point in time. So it sounds like what you created was the Cliff Notes version of, of all the scientific literature for, for doctors and for, for physicians. Exactly. Something that clinicians could open up, get to the information that they needed at that point in time in front of the patient very quickly. So when we first talked, you, you were sharing with me that you think that there are three kinds of clinicians, the uninformed, the misinformed, and the informed. Will, will you talk a little bit about that? So the three groups here are, as you said, uninformed. That is the clinicians who have not been trained, have not attended any CME continuing medical education workshops to learn about how ADHD presents in adults over the age of 18. Those are the uninformed. The informed are those who have gone to courses or did receive some training so that they understand how ADHD looks in the adults versus the children. Unfortunately, the misinformed are those who have prejudice about ADHD and or psychiatric conditions in general and simply don't believe that ADHD exists as a legitimate psychiatric condition. The informed are good physicians because they're able to offer what is the best possible diagnostic and treatment options to patients. The uninformed is where I spend a great deal of my time giving lectures and teaching physicians who are unfamiliar with ADHD, those who are receptive to learning the new information. I've, I've literally trained thousands of physicians and clinicians, prescribers, on how to identify ADHD. Because identi- ADHD is such a highly prevalent disorder 
in the adult community. What people don't appreciate is that ADHD in adults is the second most prevalent psychiatric condition, second only to major depression, which is clinical depression. And yet here's a disorder that's so prevalent and yet physicians and especially psychiatric residents who I spend my time with aren't, aren't trained to identify. So the misinformed are those folks who have prejudice. They don't believe in ADHD. They believe that this is just a function of laziness or the people are just not bright enough to do what they're supposed to do. And the difficulty with that is if you're misinformed and you don't understand what ADHD is and you don't identify your patients, then the patients are suffering with their ADHD. As a result, they may be less adherent to their medical plan because they can't remember to take their medications on a regular basis, or they're prone to get into car accidents, or they're more likely to get divorced, file for bankruptcy, have multiple job interruptions. And it's just a, it's a major problem. This is not just a little inattention in Johnny sitting in class. So when I'm working with with my clients who say that they don't believe in in medication, you know, and I share with them that list that you really just mentioned, but all the side effects of not treating uh, not treating their ADHD with with medication. So when you say I don't believe in ADHD, it's as if this is a faith-based approach. It should not be a faith-based approach. It should be a medical and scientific approach. So the American Medical Association Scientific Council once said that ADHD was one of the best research medical conditions in all of medicine. That's a quote from 1998. That's 16 years ago, and we've had an explosion of international research in ADHD. So if you say I don't believe in ADHD, what you've just told me is that I haven't learned about it. I'm not interested in reading the research, and I have an opinion. Don't confuse me with the facts. That's all very well and good. Please refer your patients who may have ADHD to someone who's trained enough to make an accurate diagnosis and recommend effective treatment. You know, and I think too, when when um, in the the ADHD community, when uh, one of the things that is so frustrating when we hear people say that they don't believe in ADHD or they don't believe in medication, it's you know I think it's very um, uh, dismissive. And, I, and it gets people kind of fired up. What are some of the things that you have found to be effective uh, as far as responses to that? So even if it's just from you know, a, a patient to a, a family member um, or a friend in the community, are there things that you have kind of learned through your years in practice that um, you kind of suggest as responses uh, to these, these types of things when they come up? Well, that's... An insightful question because I just finished a session with a patient this morning who is a 25-year-old woman, bright gal, went to an Ivy League college and failed out. She stayed off medicine for a year or two and then came back to see me just this morning saying, I have finally come to the realization that unless I respect my ADHD and what it causes difficulties, where it causes difficulties, that I just won't 
make of my life as I hoped. And I've returned to see you to get some more insight and treatment options. And what's most importantly to me, as she says, is that I have had to give up my mother's encouragement to try harder and stay off medicine. Now, that's a particularly strong impact on one's attitude when a parent says, just try harder. And we had the conversation about vision. If you have blurred vision, am I going to yell at you to say, try harder in order to see print that you can't possibly see? Now, we understand this analogy very quickly because we know that our vision is really not under our willful control. Mm -hmm. Either our eyes work or they don't work. And if they're not working, then we wear corrective glasses to improve our vision. Do you need to wear glasses if you have blurred vision? No. If you increase the print size of everything, you can read. But if there's print size that you can't increase, that's material you won't be able to read and you can't learn. And so everybody with blur vision would put on glasses and improve their vision and function at an optimal level. Yet when we go to ADHD and we say, this is a brain disorder that causes the symptoms you experience in attention, distractibility, forgetfulness, disorganization, people have the idea that because the symptoms are psychological in nature, that we should be able to overcome them will with willpower. And they fail to realize that the, that the experiences you're having are really the symptoms of a disorder, not an outcome of who you are. It's not that you're lazy or dumb or not motivated. It's that you have ADHD that compromises your ability to do that. And just like the glasses, the medications serve the function of improving the biologic aspects of ADHD so that all of those experiences you have, we define as symptoms, improve. Now, do you find that the kind of the stigma around ADHD is, is greater than other uh, invisible disabilities? It's an interesting question. I think over the course of time, psychiatric illnesses have been historically viewed as psychological experiences. And that's to say that if it's a psychological experience, you should be able to overcome the experience by force of will. We had these discussions in the 50s and 60s about schizophrenia, that it was caused by cold refrigerator mothers. And same thing and with that, autism. Yes, uh, coming now in into the present. So in schizophrenia, we we blamed the mothers and we said, look, this is just the person's volitional choice of lifestyle. But we don't have those ridiculous conversations anymore. Then in the 70s and early 80s, we had the conversation about how depression was a normal emotional variant. And if you just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and understood why you were depressed, you wouldn't be depressed anymore. Well, I mean, you have so depression. many reasons to be happy, right? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly. And so we don't really have those conversations anymore because we're able to distinguish sadness from clinical depression. And now here we are with, with ADHD and we're having the same discussion. It's a psychological event 
You should be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Strength of will will overcome this. And if you can't overcome it, you must be a weak person. Now it becomes a character indictment and a failure to recognize the biologic aspects of a psychiatric condition like ADHD. You know, I was fascinated by when, uh, when uh, Russell Barkley wrote the editorial a few years ago in the Journal of Attention Disorders about that German manuscript that uh, was translated in the, the 1700s and how this doctor who wrote about all the, the uh, symptoms of what we would now call ADHD was basically shunned by the church and um, kind of connecting all of the um, kind of the character uh, indictments to that historical um, uh, era where when we look at lack of focus, impulsivity as failures of uh, a moral failing. Um, so there's this really interesting, deep history there that, you know, I think that the more we talk about that, I think the more we can kind of understand, okay, so this is where this history comes from because then we can do something about it. Right. And, and when you go down to a patient level and you talk to patients about this, I find it very helpful to, to have this discussion that we're having right now so that patients can come to understand the difference between who they are and what they have. Who they are is their character, their values, their morals, their relationships. What they have is their medical condition, their psychiatric condition. But let's not confuse the disorder with who you are as a person. And one of the aspects that's very critical to part of psychotherapy of ADHD, which I think is very rarely written about, and that is once the ADHD is successfully treated, you actually resurrect the person's self-image and self-esteem to understand that they actually can achieve their potential uninhibited by, by the impairments and the symptoms of ADHD. So it's, it's, you know, one of the things that, that I talk with a lot of my clients about and do in my coaching groups is discuss the issue of shame. I think that shame around issues related to, to productivity and kind of just getting things done in the ADHD community is, I call it the, the 800-pound elephant in the room. Do you see that too? I do, and I'll give you a very specific experience and story of a patient of mine, and I'm not betraying any confidence this person has gone public on his ADHD. But if your viewers have ever seen the NASDAQ video screen in Times Square, probably seen by billions of people around the world annually, that video screen was created and patented by a man with ADHD. And when I was doing radio and television interviews with him, we had the opportunity to stand in Times Square and look at it. And I asked him a few questions, explained to me how he developed it, why are there windows in the video screen? And I said at the end, you must be very proud to realize that you've created something that billions of people around the world have seen. And he looked at me, cocked his head and said, well, not really. I said, well, explain that to me. He said, I spent my life listening to people tell me I wasn't really going to amount to much. And the, and the people were so negative about my potential. I look at that video screen and it's as if it's a different person that created it. And I understood at that moment that the negative comments that he had to listen to over the course of his life had such a traumatic impact on his self-esteem that he could not integrate 
what the negative comments were versus the accomplishments he had in his professional life. Thank you for sharing that story, because as you're sharing that, all I'm thinking is, man, can I relate to that? Uh, yeah, it's it's the, the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think the more that we are talking about these issues with each other and normalize it a little bit more, it it really does release a lot of the shame that from from years and years of screwing things up. Yeah. And, and for those who are listening, if if these stories resonate, that you're having the same experience most of my patients have and, and most people with ADHD have once they realize they have a disorder that's not necessarily a function of who they are and that it's a disorder that is remarkably treatable. Of, of all the psychiatric conditions, there are two disorders whose symptoms I can improve in about an hour, hour and a half. One of that is panic disorders. If I give you a tranquilizer, your panic symptoms diminish. The other is ADHD. If I give you a stimulant medication, for example, you're going to notice the difference within, within an hour, an hour and a half, depending on the dose. And so this is a remarkably treatable condition, and people walk around having not a clue that that's what they suffer with. Yeah, it's the, I think um, Alan Brown had a TED talk where he talks about the 85% of people who are walking around right now who have ADHD, but have no idea that they have ADHD. Right. So in a, in a study that was done about 10 years ago, it was a very large study done in the U.S. assessing psychiatric conditions. And they did part of that study looked at ADHD and discovered that the prevalence rate in the U.S. of ADHD is four and a half percent. So four and a half adults out of 100 have ADHD. Of those with ADHD, 75 percent of them in adulthood had never been diagnosed. Mm. We're left with the idea that you have symptoms as a child, which are requisite for the diagnosis as an adult, but that the conclusion is that the adults with ADHD were diagnosed as children. The reality is that 75% of adults with ADHD were never diagnosed as children. So if you say to yourself, gosh, if I wasn't diagnosed as a child, then I really don't have this disorder, that would be a falsehood. Because? Because... Many children get through school by force of will or their behavior is not disruptive. Most of the children heretofore until recently were being diagnosed based on their disruptive behavior, generally boys more so than girls. As the children aged, the inattentive symptoms and disorganization become more problematic with the increasing academic demands. And so middle school, high school, and certainly college, this is where the kids who are not disruptive start falling apart because they can't compensate for the increasing academic demands. And then the ratio of male to female is almost one-to-one. So we have many more females getting diagnosed as we get older. Which again makes a lot of sense when I look at my own my own experience of uh, you know kind of pushing my way through school and then my freshman year of college was when that that road hit a dead end when I almost failed out of school, which is when I got diagnosed with with ADHD. 
Dr. Goodman, what I want to do right now is take a really quick break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about some of the things that we might be able to do uh, as consumers that may be helpful uh, to share with, uh, with our physicians, with our doctors that can help them help their own clients. So we'll be right back. Did you know that Audible and ADHD Rewired have teamed up? You can get a free audiobook download by going to audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired for a 30-day free trial and for a free download. And I want everyone to know that if it were not for Tom Nardone, the hardest working producer of this show, it is very possible that this 116-week streak of not missing an episode would have ended. After my computer hard drive completely failed, leaving me without a computer for a few days, during the final week of the coaching group registration, Tom Nardone really stepped it up and fully brought his B-plus game and saved the day. Tom, I can't thank you enough. Have a great vacation. And while he's away, go to TomNardone.net and pick up your copy of Chasing Kites. And stay tuned after the outro. I'm going to be reading from Chasing Kites. Go to TomNardone.net to pick up your copy or check out his podcast on iTunes, The Tom Nardone Show. Now, let's get back to the interview. All right, we are back with Dr. David Goodman. And right before the break, I was asking about things that we can do to kind of arm uh, doctors, other providers with uh, to help them be more helpful with the, the patient, the client that they may be seeing if they are in that category of the uninformed. So if you're a clinician, a family member who's uninformed, reading and listening to lectures and speaking presentations like this one is very helpful. First and foremost, you need to put it on the radar screen. You need to know that it exists and you need to know what it looks like. Once you learn what it looks like, you will be very surprised because your awareness will be heightened and you'll start seeing it in the amongst people where you wouldn't have. So how would you identify it? If you're a clinician, it's the patient who shows up late regularly for the appointments. It's the patient who loses their prescriptions, doesn't pay their bills on time, doesn't follow up with laboratory tests. If it's a client in a psychotherapy, they may say their spouse complains that they're forgetful, that they lose things, that they don't follow through. But you know, my spouse really doesn't understand the demands of my day, and I can't be bothered with all these things that he or she wants me to do. Often there is a rationalization and an excuse offered up that distracts the clinician from really understanding this is a problem. If you know that ADHD is something to consider and it is highly prevalent, then inquiring in the evaluation, just a few questions about ADHD and the possibility of its existence are important. And clinicians will say, look, I, I don't really have a lot of time. I understand this is important, but tell me how to at least get a signal in a very time efficient fashion. So there are three questions you can ask. Are you inattentive and distractible and has that been a lifelong pattern? As a child, did you have these kinds of symptoms? And is there a first degree family member who looks like you? 
three questions. Mm. You're going after the presentation of symptoms, the chronicity since childhood, and the genetics. If you get yes to any one of those, then you follow it up with a more structured interview looking at the symptoms out of the DSM-5 that define ADHD in adults. You know, when I've had conversations with, uh, with clients who come in uh, for an evaluation and we're talking about inattention, I've been struck by the number of clients that don't really understand what that even means, what inattention is. It's a, they, they think it's just kind of like spacing out, but I see it as so much more than that. How do you describe inattention? So inattention is the ability to sustain your attention on a task that might be otherwise boring and not terribly engaging. In high school or college, it's sitting in a lecture and taking notes without drifting or getting distracted or doodling. If you're in a meeting for your job, it's the ability to sit in the meeting and listen to everyone and keep track of what is being conveyed and what tasks need to be accomplished without feeling as though you need to get up and move around, go to the bathroom, get a glass of water, or doodling. If you're a housewife, it's the ability to get to your job on time. It's the ability to pick up your kids on time. It's the ability to pay bills on time. It's the ability to stay in a conversation without interrupting or intruding. It's the ability to sit calmly for extended periods of time without feeling fidgety and restless. Very often when we see people who are fidgeting, we'll say, well, that person's probably anxious. But there's a difference between the fidgetiness of somebody who's anxious and the fidgetiness of somebody who has ADHD. And here's the difference. The anxious person is aware that they're tapping their foot. The ADHD person is unaware that they're tapping their foot. That is – I've never heard that before, and that is – that's great. My – I do this thing with my – where I'm always kind of fidgeting between my, my thumb and my middle finger. I'm, I do it all day long, and it drives my nuts my, – my wife nuts when we're, we're sitting on the couch watching TV together because she'll catch it in the, the – out of the corner of her eye and she's kind of a, a highly sensitive person. So, so it, she just, it draws her attention. So and she knows I'm not doing it on purpose. She'll put her hand on my hand to try to, to, to stop my hand. And I try to stop in about a minute to maybe a minute and a half later, or just starts up again. And I'm totally not aware that I'm even doing it. So that was a really, uh, um, um, informative description. That was a really great differentiator between, uh, types of fidgeting, how to differentiate that, because it looks it looks exactly the same. Now, this morning, I was even thinking about, and the reason I was thinking about this is the difference between OCD and ADHD when it comes to checking, where uh, someone with, with OCD maybe was put in the, the reason I thought about this was I may have put on my deodorant twice this morning because I wasn't sure <laughs> that I actually put it on. And so behaviorally, if someone was just watching it, they might look at that as saying OCD because I did that, you know, more than one time. But with ADHD, it's the well, I probably wasn't fully paying attention to what I was doing, so I wasn't really aware of it. So it was a memory issue. So those are very good examples of behaviors that, if simply observed, are very difficult to discern whether it's obsessive compulsive rituals or whether this is inattentive ADHD and I can't remember if I did it. So here's another way to make that distinction. 
The diagnosis, by the way, is not so much made on the behavior of the individual. It's based on the psychological experience of the behavior. Now, let me tell you what I mean. If you do something repetitively, if I interrupt that behavior and you are left feeling a bit anxious and there is an urge to actually have to do that behavior, that is behavior that's generated by anxiety and it falls into the obsessive compulsive disorder category. If you do something repetitively and I interrupt you and say, look, let's, let's go someplace else, and you're able to disengage and move on, the behavior is not anxiety related and may be a function of ADHD. So when you say checking, I interrupt you from checking and I say, let's go outside. If you're, if you're left with, okay, you know, we can go outside, then that checking behavior is probably much more related to ADHD. If I say, stop the checking behavior, we're going to go outside and you say, look, let me just, I just have to finish this one last time, one last time, one last time. That's anxiety generated. That's a successive compulsive rituals. Well, what about though the, when it's the person with ADHD is sort of in midst of thought and they know when they're interrupted, that just knocks that train of thought completely out of their mind. So that is an obsession. So an hmm. obs a compulsion is a repetitive behavior. An obsession is a repetitive thought. Both of these are what we call egos. Usually they're called ego dystonic. What that means is – Yeah, break, break that down for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm having this thought. I'm doing this behavior. But you know what? It, it's not really – I wish I could stop it, but I can't. I wish I could stop it, but I can't. That means it's not comfortable with you. Well, I guess what I'm asking, though, is the is not so much that it's not comfortable, but it's the awareness of when there is an interruption in the middle of a of having to hold a piece of information online in your mind that that creates almost a sense of agitation because, you know, that because of the challenges related to working memory, that there's going to be a, a very difficult uh, uh, time with holding on to that piece of information. So what we're discussing is the fact that one needs to explore the psychological experience and understand the right questions in order to discern whether the behavior is an outgrowth of being forgetful or whether it's an outgrowth of, of anxiety or whether it's an outgrowth of some other psychological experience. It's the psychological experience that perpetuates the behavior that becomes the basis to determining what diagnostic category it goes in. So when you say psychological experience, what you're, you're saying is, what does it feel like? What are the thoughts going on in your head that are behind the behavior, that are behind the emotions? Exactly. And you actually get more out of the description if you say, if I stop this behavior, if I force you to not engage in the behavior, tell me how you're left feeling. That's, that's a great question. And for listeners, too, that's you know, a great question to think about yourself. Um, because we know that ADHD often uh, travels with friends, and these friends are you know, depression, anxiety disorders, OCD. Um, so it's important, too, to identify the coexisting disorders. Yes, and this becomes particularly challenging because ADHD individuals often have a coexisting psychiatric condition. For example, 47% of adults with ADHD have an anxiety disorder. The most common anxiety disorder amongst ADHD individuals is social phobia, and 40% of ADHD adults also 
may have a mood disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, dysthymia. So being able to sort out the psychological experiences and symptoms, put them in the appropriate diagnostic category in order to then formulate the right treatment approach is really the challenge of experienced clinicians mm-hmm. who do this all the time. And just for the listeners who, who don't know, uh, dysthymia just is basically low-grade depression that's, that's ongoing and chronic. Correct. So a couple uh, couple of things. I know we're running out of time here. Um, you talk about, when we last talked, we talked about pharmacists who are um, misinformed. Well, pharmacists are very well trained on what they do. They are trained on medications, and they're very knowledgeable about that. Pharmacists that don't aren't pharmacists who aren't involved in clinical care. That is, pharmacists who are not in in hospitals actually seeing patients and the outcome of pharmacologic approaches are often at a disadvantage because they don't know exactly how the medication will function or react with a given individual patient. And often the pharmacists don't have the medical history or the psychiatric history in order to better decide what to tell the patients. My One of my difficulties with some pharmacists who are well-intended but perhaps young in their career is that they may unnecessarily warn patients about their stimulant medications for ADHD and frighten the patient who then either stops taking their medicine or calls me for reassurance. This often comes up with those outlying patients who are fast metabolizers or need higher than usual doses to control their ADHD symptoms. And although those doses are outside of the FDA dose range, they're clearly much better and they don't have side effects. But pharmacists who are unaccustomed to that will often forewarn patients about this and it causes consternation for, for the patients and families. So what, what suggestions do you give to, to your patients when they, uh, when they come in contact with that? Because I, it's common. It's, it's a really, you know, the fact that we have a condition that medication really helps with and we go to the pharmacy and we're kind of viewed as we're drug seekers, you know, it's, it's, it adds to the stigma and it, it's preventing people from really getting help. So how do you, what's your recommendations to, to patients uh, when that happens? So I try to neutralize and anticipate that this might happen. And in sessions with patients who are on higher than typical doses, I will say, look, you are on a higher than typical dose. Here's the FDA max dose. This is what you're on. Your blood pressure and pulse are fine. You have minimal symptoms. You have minimal side effects and your symptoms are very well controlled. You may hear from a pharmacist that you're on an unusually high dose and they will rattle off all the risks of doing that. Please put their well-intended remarks aside and you and I will have ongoing discussions. The other issue that's most pertinent now is with the CDC coming out with, the Centers for Disease Control coming out with recommendations about opioids, that is pain killers and narcotics, some people are lumping stimulants into this category as drugs of abuse. And that is absolutely just not correct. 
the opiates are highly addictive. You can unintentionally become addicted to these opiate drugs and people have to then taper off. But stimulant medications, although they carry a class warning for abuse, the newer preparations of long acting once a day are much less likely sought after for that. And so I caution people about lumping stimulants and opioids together because they are completely separate issues. Unfortunately, the pharmacists now are seeing drugs of abuse in the same light and counseling everybody with the same advisory warnings. And what about insurance companies when you have to deal with, with them? And I know this question is probably an entire show, but when you, um, you know, dealing with higher, higher dosages than the FDA uh, approves, how, how do you deal with that? Insurance companies are becoming an increasing challenge because they are looking for ways to contain costs and they rightfully should do that. The balance has to be struck between those people who clearly have ADHD and are being prescribed an appropriate dose, have responded well, and have been on compliantly for a long period of time. The difficulty with each January as policies get rewritten and formulary pharmacy formularies change, patients are finding themselves being denied authorization for medications that they may have been on for one or two or three or four years, and all of a sudden finding themselves being forced to change medication at uh, at the behest of the insurance company with the clinician saying, you know, this is just a problem and we can try our best to work around it. But it does create, it creates panic amongst patients when they have to change medications. Mm-hmm. Another aspect, the other aspect of this that you haven't asked about, but uh, a year or two ago, there was an issue with generics. And though, although some of the generics were authorized as being equivalent, they were subsequently found out not to be equivalent. And so patients were on medication and then they would change to a different generic and they would discover it wasn't working. And then people couldn't figure out what was going on. So that added a whole nother level of complexity to. So is that, has that now been resolved? It has been resolved. That, I'm so glad that you brought that up too. Cause I, you know, I take Adderall XR and um, I was taking it for a long time. I, I tried the generic and it just was like, I felt like I wasn't taking anything. And because of insurance reasons, I had to try the XR again and surprisingly, it actually, I was like, wait, this is actually working and it's way cheaper. So that's really interesting to, to hear, to hear that. Um, and that's good. That's good news. So the word of caution is if you are on any medication and more, we're talking about ADHD medications. If you're on ADHD medication that have been working for you and all of a sudden you find it's just not working as well as it used to, the first thing to do is find out whether there's been a change in the generic manufacturer mm-hmm. that you've been getting because the pharmacies get their generics from their distributors and those distributors then determine which generics they're going to stock based on pricing and and those generics can change over a period of time even from the same distributor. Our medical system is such a mess. <laughs> Well, you know, there's always satisfaction and dissatisfaction. We're, I, I'm simply on the program here to help your listeners kind of navigate through some of the subtleties because some of the information is simply not available to the general public unless you have programs like yourself where you pull in an expert who can speak frankly about what's going on out here. 
Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is relevant uh, to for listeners to know? Well, I'll add another piece of information, which is what I think is the next clinical frontier for ADHD, and that is ADHD in people over the age of 50. Most of the research on ADHD has been done in children, adolescents, young adults, mid-adults. The clinical research trials for medications um, sealing the age at 55 or 65. There's no longitudinal studies that is following children into adulthood and into older adulthood. So we have very little research on this. I just published an article, it's a review article on the world literature on this, and there's enough to publish a academic review of this with a colleague of mine, but it really does speak to the fact that there is a, a paucity of research in ADHD in adults. What is the diagnostic symptoms that we need to look at? What are the impairments that arise? How do we distinguish age-related cognitive changes from persistent ADHD. In the United States, there was a survey, only one out of five memory clinics even evaluate for ADHD. What? So if you have chronic ADHD and you've never been diagnosed and you show up to a memory clinic saying, I think I have Alzheimer's or dementia, they may or may not even think about ADHD as part of their differential diagnosis. And if you have ADHD and you have normal cognitive aging, the two are exacerbating your cognitive function. At least if you have ADHD, regardless of age, you get your ADHD treated. And people will say, well, you know, you had ADHD your whole life. You're 68 years old. Why, why even bother treating it? And this is what I say. I say, wouldn't it be nice to know that you have a disorder that can be effectively treated and that your disorder is not who you are? So I just saw a gentleman 66 years old the other day who had never been diagnosed, and he clearly has chronic, longstanding ADHD since he was a child. He's a successful, bright guy who's just navigated through the environment. But he has ADHD since childhood, and nobody would have considered it unless you know that ADHD does not go away when you get your ARP card or your Medicare card. <laughs> it's, people used to think that it goes away on your 16th birthday. Right, or when you got discharged from the pediatrician's office. <laughs> well, that's, that's, there's a lot of, of – as much as the, the research on ADHD is exploding – it really, you've only kind of scratched the surface in a lot of ways. Well, there's certainly plenty of people out there who could benefit from being diagnosed and treated. And whether you end up agreeing to take medication or whether you pursue a cognitive behavioral approach or you learn new organizational skills, you mentioned earlier that your wife touches your hands when you get fidgety. One of the things that we work on in our practice with my wife, who's a psychotherapist of 30 years, is teaching the non-ADHD spouse what these behaviors mean, that these behaviors are an outgrowth of a disorder and this person is not deliberately trying to annoy you by showing up late or misplacing things or forgetting to follow up. And the change of perspective by educating the spouse can greatly diminish their sense of frustration. It also allows for a better communication of how to coordinate information in the household and how to better navigate through the different household tasks on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So, Dr. Goodman, does your does your wife do podcast interviews? Uh, sh- I have not asked her. She has not up to this date, but I could certainly ask her. I appreciate your uh, your invitation. That would be great uh, to have her come and talk about the, the spouse piece of it as well, because uh, having a, a spouse who understands the ADHD and is not judgmental is, I think, almost as important as being on the right medication. Correct. The environment is equally important to the medication. Dr. Goodman, I want to thank you so much for your time. I, I learned a lot from talking with you in these last 45 minutes. Um, how can listeners, if they want to reach out to you, find out more about what you do, what would be the best way that people can reach you? The best way to reach me is through our website at www.addadult.com. Very easy to remember, addadult.com. On there are a number of videos There are professional publications. There's the usual contact information. So learn more about it and and contact us if you're in the area or actually not in the area. I had a woman who flew up from North, um, flew up from New Orleans to see me. She said, I simply cannot find anybody who knows ADHD and I want to see an expert. And so there's no limit to where people will come from to, to see an expert in this disorder. Mm, that's that's wonderful. Uh, we we need we need more of you. Please keep up what you are doing to get the the information and education and awareness out there, and with helping uh, the patients that you have been for for three decades. So thank you so much. Um, I will post all the links to uh, on on my website um, to, so people can get a hold of you. And uh, Dr. Goodman, are you going to be at the Chan Conference uh, this fall? I am still deciding. I often have a conference at the same date that's in Colorado, and it's a very large conference where I get the opportunity to give a lecture to about 1,300 clinicians. So I need to try to educate as many of our uh, providers as is possible. Well, wherever you end up going, I'm sure you will be doing really good work. Dr. David Goodman, thank you so much for helping my listeners get their ADHD rewired. Stay tuned to the bonus after the outro. Thank you for listening to another episode of ADHD Rewired. And if you're new to the show, welcome to ADHD Rewired. We are more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. You can see a full outline of this and all other episodes with all the links and other resources mentioned during this interview at ADHDrewired.com. Help support this podcast by checking out my sponsors. I use Zoom video conferencing nearly every day and so can you. Go free or go pro, but please go to erictibbers.com slash Zoom so they know that I sent you. And you can get a free audiobook from Audible at erictivers.com slash Audible. And next time you shop Amazon, use the Amazon search portal at ADHDrewired.com. A small percentage of your purchase will go to support this show. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. You can also support this podcast by leaving an honest rating and review in iTunes or Stitcher. This really helps other people find this show. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Don't just be a passive listener. Be an active member of the ADHD Rewired community. We are on Facebook. You can like our page, 
but please submit your request to join our free and growing community. And don't forget to check your other inbox because I screen everybody before they come into our community. This is a reading of Chasing Kites, written by Tom Nardone. This is a passage from his, uh, the first chapter of his book. Hello, friends. I am Tom Nardone, and up to this point, I had gone my entire life not knowing why so many things were so difficult for me. I had never heard of anything called ADHD. I thought I would somehow be able to improve my life because I identified the problem. I was wrong. It would be another five years before I got a diagnosis from a doctor or any type of treatment. I have made some poor decisions in my life. I do not ask for your sympathy. My life is the result of the choices I have made. In the end, we play the hand we are dealt. We are responsible for the people we become and the lives we make for ourselves, whether we are ADHD or not. This is not a how-to manual or an outline for how people should deal with their ADHD or the problems it presents. These are the things I went through and the choices I made. I am aware some of the choices I made were not appropriate or warranted. It is not my intention to suggest all people who are ADHD resort to the measures or form the same opinions I have. I chose some of the more difficult stories and times in my life to share. I have done so to give you, the reader, a front row seat and a clear picture of the life of a person living with ADHD. I spared no detail in sharing my experiences or the sum of them. And I struggled with deciding what stories would and would not go into it. While most of the stories I remember vividly, I have little memory of the stories about the early years of my life. I had to depend on members of my family and their account of them to fill in the gaps. While much of what you read will be entertaining and funny, it was nonetheless my reality at the time. I think you will laugh through much of this, and I invite you to do so at my expense. I write this to the non-ADHD spouse and significant others. There are many people with ADHD in relationships and marriages who are unable to articulate what being ADHD really means. It is my hope you will read and understand what it might have been like for your loved one to deal with the problems and challenges they had and may still face today. I write this to the moms and dads of children with ADHD. I want you to understand the problems and challenges your child is facing are very real to them. As parents, we want what is best for our kids. It is a difficult thing for a child to articulate the reasons why their work performance is poor in school or around the house. I hope my experiences will give you insight as to what they might be up against. I write this to the teachers of students who are ADHD, who are not sure why they seemingly set themselves up for failure each day. I want you to see there are things going on in their lives besides school that have a direct effect on their ability to care about what you ask of them in your classroom. Most of all, I write this to the ADHD community. You who are ADHD, I want you all to see you are not alone. 
Many of the things you went through are the same things I and many others have been through or are going through. It is my hope you will find my adventures to be relatable and inspiring. I grew up in a world I did not understand and a world that seemed to make no attempt to understand me. This is the story of me and the architects who unknowingly built me. I am Tom Nardone, and I am ADHD. Welcome to my show. To get more of this story, go to tomnardone.net and pick up your copy of Chasing Kites. I think I want to read this again. This was so good. Let me see if I can find one other uh, quick passage that was from uh, the end. There was something we were talking about marriage and um, your first marriage. And uh, let's see. Here we go. I'm going now to page 147. I think the secret to any marriage, whether ADHD is in it or not, is to simply ask yourself, can you accept this person the way they are today? If there is anything you are hoping will change in someone, you will most likely be disappointed. ADHD did not kill my marriage. Marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman. And Tom, now in all 50 states, you can, uh, it could be a man and a man or a woman and a woman. That's my own editorial. Um, sorry for doing that to your book. It's my podcast. But let me continue. Uh, marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman, not a man, a woman, and an acronym. That might be my favorite line in the book. All right. Um, I was very irritable all the time. And I had the wrong wife. I admit I played my part in what destroyed us, and I did nothing constructive to save it. I was just not interested in it anymore. For me, it all became about something else. It was not about love or the promise I made. It became about me not losing. I was tired of losing. It took me over 30 years to make this decision, but I am done worrying about whether or not the way I live my life makes people feel. There is not a person on this earth I need that badly. Oh man, I want to read about your proposal to uh, Yvonne. Let's see. Oh, and how you met Brett. Oh, it's so good. It's go get this book, Chasing Kites. I promise, even if you're not a reader, it took me like a year to actually sit down and read this book. I read it on vacation and I I was sneaking away to find time to read because uh, this book was so awesome. Chasing Kites by Tom Nardone. Go to Chasing, no, not Chasing. Go to, um, I do this every time. Go to uh, tomnardone.net uh, to pick up your copy. And Tom, you're welcome.